Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Paleo Conservatives Quick Dispatch number two. Well, first, you're almost certainly aware of the awful shooting this week at a Christian school in Nashville. It actually coincides with an article or two I've had saved that I thought I might bring up sometime, written by a young lady named Eliza Mondegreen. She's been speaking for some time now about a phenomenon, which is a real psychological manipulation technique called phobic indoctrination. A quick Google search shows she's actually been writing on the subject since at least 2021, which puts her well ahead of the curve. If you're sufficiently online, you've probably been seeing for years now the trans community reacts, well, badly to any legislation to ban transition of minors or attempts to keep males out of women's sports or, well, virtually any opinion that's not altogether pro-transgenderism. But at some point, the narrative shifted a bit. Soon enough, such legislation or policies would literally cost lives. Well, how so? It turns out, a few years back, a study reported that 41% of trans-identifying people had attempted suicide. Subsequent studies have shown similar numbers, some lower, but always vastly higher than the average person would report. And I don't want to dwell too much on this right now, but why are they more suicidal? We don't really know. Some say because they're mentally ill. Some say because they face so much discrimination. I will admit I lean towards the former. Regardless, this narrative turned into trans people will kill themselves if you don't provide them with something, gender-affirming care or access to competitive sports with their chosen gender or freedom from being misgendered or whatever. Gender affirmation, we were told, saves lives, and if you do not support some particular cause, you're driving people to suicide. But give me what I want or I will kill myself is obviously not a tactic that has historically worked all that well. And over time, it basically warped into you're denying people their right to exist, which itself isn't too far from you're literally killing people, which easily morphs into genocide. And even if I don't get the exact path that led us here, the fact is this has been the rhetoric of the trans movement for some time. But to the right ears, it's a potent rhetorical device. Which brings us to Ms. Mondegreen's thesis on obic indoctrination. In effect, this is a method of using or instilling in people an irrational fear to manipulate them into adopting a set of beliefs. In short, if you tell someone enough times that they're in danger, that someone is out to get them, they may eventually come to believe you. They'll come to believe that they are a target, that everyone else is ignoring the threat to their well-being, and that only you understand and can address the threat. Especially, of course, if you're someone they have reason to trust. So, maybe you don't have any reason to trust random fools on Twitter or Tumblr, but what about Chase Strangio, female trans person and, quote, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice and Staff Attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. Chase says, quote, Your fear of contending with how none of us have perfectly sexed bodies in a binary is killing people. And then, quote, in all caps, Stop killing black trans women with your hands, with your weapons, with your governmental neglect, with your carceral regime. And in reference to an article they wrote, The Guardian is killing trans people. The government is killing trans women of color, and I've barely really scratched the surface here. Or how about Alejandra Caraballo, clinical instructor at Harvard Law Cyber Law Clinic, who would presumably find Chase's language of killing much too mundane and has gone all the way to genocide. Alex says, Michael Knowles is openly calling for genocide against trans people. We're told, quote, it is no exaggeration to call what is happening in Texas the first step towards genocide, referring to Texas looking to ban medical transition of children. Quote, they'll push for a fascist dictator to commit genocide, etc. Anyways, most of us have been watching this and just considered it all, honestly, pure silliness. Here in the U.S., no one is advocating for mass murder of our own citizens and any claim that we are is not worth paying attention to. 
Which brings me back to Miss Mondegreen. She, I think, had the wisdom not to view the claims from the rational gaze of a person who can plainly see that there's no genocide, but from the perspective of the people being told nonstop that there are people literally out there trying to kill them. And just to be clear, we still don't know why this person killed those folks at the school. Apparently, she attended the school when she was young. She apparently left behind a manifesto, though we've not had access to it yet. And she clearly had mental issues. I can't claim, and Eliza doesn't claim to either, to know what this person's exact motivations are. But she's been documenting for years now that there's a militant faction of trans activists who are preparing for real violence because they've been effectively brainwashed. And the media, after this shooting, is further reinforcing this. Even now, instead of focusing on the victims, they're running pieces about how the trans community feels that they're being targeted now, which is honestly a little bit perverse after a trans person actually targeted and attacked a Christian school. And I've included a link to one of her Substack posts on the subject, by the way. And that's obviously a pretty grim subject, so let's move on. Two episodes ago, I spoke about the apparent mental health crisis among liberals. I I pushed the button to publish the episode, and I went for a bike ride, and I started thinking about the statistic I had quoted, that over 50% of liberal women aged 18 to 29 claimed that they'd been diagnosed with a mental condition. And the more I thought about that statistic, the more preposterous it sounded. Are there even enough mental health professionals in the country to make that many diagnoses? I started imagining psychiatrists working in shifts day and night, writing prescriptions for all these women. And I thought, clearly I made a stupid beginner mistake, and that number that I was looking at must have been something like 50 incidents per thousand, not 50%. Obviously, surely I'd gotten the number wrong, I'd have to unpublish the episode, include a little apology, and I would have learned a valuable lesson about understanding my sources. But if you heard the episode, that didn't happen, and I rechecked the numbers, and in fact, the number is above 50%. But that still doesn't necessarily mean it's true, it just means all these young women reported that they'd been diagnosed. Maybe they have, but self-report studies aren't always the most accurate. There's some amount of social credit to be found nowadays in claiming that you're a victim or you have some malady you've had to overcome. People will very proudly announce that they're neuroatypical or neurodivergent. This could just be, as they say, a social contagion. It could be real too, of course, but surely people have been known to lie to pollsters. I bring this up because of another polling result that makes me wonder. Way back in my second episode, I mentioned that people always display a so-called in-group bias towards others. We prefer the company, generally speaking, of people like us. Whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic, you will, consciously or otherwise, have a more positive feeling towards members of your own group, and it's been that way as long as we've been measuring it. Except, no, in recent polling, can you guess what group suddenly upended all that and decided that they view their own group less favorably than the other racial groups? I bet you can. It's that persistent statistical anomaly, white liberals. There's a long-standing poll, the American National Election Studies, which records how favorably various groups view other groups. And in the most recent polls, white liberals view white people about 13% less favorably than they view other ethnic groups. The more liberal, the greater the bias. A gentleman named Zach Goldberg wrote up a fascinating article a few years back highlighting this. I've included a link. And obviously, it's hard to know if this is true and if liberals have indeed shaken some long-standing biases that appear to be part of human nature or if their answer in the polling was more aspirational. I will say in this case that liberals are generally practicing what they preach. They do tend to live in more racially diverse neighborhoods. And moving on, obviously, I have to mention the indictment of Donald Trump yesterday. And I'll start by saying that any actions by an elected district attorney are, of course, political to some degree or another. 
In this case, the investigation had been ongoing for years, and Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg took the matter over from its predecessor, Cyrus Vance Jr. We should remember, though, that Mr. Bragg campaigned on the promise that he would prosecute Trump, and this was before he'd seen any of the evidence from the investigation. Working in his favor, obviously, is the fact that laws in the United States are so complex and expansive that if a prosecutor really wants to come after you, they absolutely will find a way to do it. The indictment is sealed, so we still don't know the particulars, but we assume it involves payments made to Stormy Daniels about a supposed affair. I do think Ron DeSantis made the best comment so far in the whole episode, saying, quote, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just can't speak to that. And it is sad in general. It's sad to see a former president and a current presidential candidate indicted on charges that seem to be a bit frivolous, brought by people with clear political motivations. As always, we've had some really awful commentary coming from all sides. Nancy Pelosi tweeted that Trump, quote, has the right to a trial to prove his innocence. Now, she's been a member of Congress since 1987, so one would hope that she's well aware that the burden of proof is not on defendants in United States criminal trials. Another favorite of mine is when people point out that Alvin Bragg was funded by George Soros. It's true, Soros was the largest contributor to a group that did significant campaigning for Mr. Bragg. Instead of making any kind of meaningful response, people just say that bringing up Soros is anti-Semitic, since he's Jewish. But George Soros published an op-ed last year entitled, quote, Why I Support Reform Prosecutors. So people aren't making this stuff up. He made it very clear he wants to be involved in the elections of local prosecutors throughout the country. He himself politicized the process. So surely people should be allowed to criticize this, regardless of his religion or ethnicity, right? Anyways, it's a pretty risky move by Mr. Bragg. If Trump's legal team gets the case trivially dismissed, he'll come away looking pretty foolish. If national opinion turns towards Trump because of the political prosecution, that would hurt him as well. If it led to Mr. Trump being elected, clearly Alvin Bragg's career is over. I am a bit fascinated at the prospect of a second Trump term, though. I think he failed at a lot of his stated goals, especially draining the swamp and dealing with the so-called deep state. My guess is he would return to office with a vengeance. I read last year he was working with folks on a plan to really lay siege to the incumbent powers in the executive branch. My concern about Trump is that he seems to have this ex-wife syndrome with virtually everyone he ever works with. Just about every ex-staffer I can think of in his White House left on bad terms. Compare that with Nixon. I think half of his White House would have taken a bullet for him even after he resigned. And finally, arguably one of the biggest pieces of news this week is one that requires more time to fully discuss, so I think I'll take a stab at it next week. It's this business about China and Brazil striking a trade deal, and China and Russia cozying up, and even Ukraine saying that they'll engage with China for peace talks with Russia. That's just crazy, right? I'd imagine that's what we'll be talking about for my next episode. So, that's all I got for today. Enjoy your week, everyone.